good to be back with you guys after my two-week hiatus. I'm grateful to Brother Iverson for filling in. I'm going to now back us up to where I left us off two weeks ago, give a little bit of an overview, and then move us forward in this uh, examination of how to study the Bible. Uh, before I go any further, though, I want to sh flash this text up on the screen. This book, how, or this book entitled "Grasping God's Word," is my primary source. Uh, for the material in this class. And in particular tonight, I'm pretty much going to be walking straight through um, one chapter of this book this evening. If you want to, uh, uh, to get this book, it, it, it is a textbook style uh, book. It is used in many um, university settings for teaching this subject matter, but it's not a difficult read. It's easy to follow, easy to comprehend. If you want it for your own resource, I recommend it. But grasping God's Word, much if not all, well, not all, but most everything I talk about tonight is from this source, so I want to give them credit, but also want to give you that resource for your own benefit. So let's talk about interpretation again. This is where we left off two weeks ago. We were talking about the interpretive task that we have. You see, we spent the first couple of weeks. This is not working. Uh, the clicker is not working at all. I'm showing battery, but it is blinking. Anyway, interpretation is the process that we're involved in. We spent our first few weeks talking about English translations of the Bible because we, we need to understand their uniqueness and, and pick out the resource that's best for us when it comes to translations. And then we need to talk about interpretation. The task of interpreting involves you and I as the student, reader, at two different levels. First, one has to hear the word they heard. Let me reemphasize that. First, one has to hear the word they heard, meaning the original audience. We must try to understand what was said to the original audience back then and there. And then we must learn to hear that same word in the here and now. The back then and there is called, the understanding the back then and there is called exegesis. The here and now is referred to as hermeneutics. So those terms might get thrown out from time to time. I don't want them to be too confusing for you. Just giving you a little bit of definition here up front. Now, the thing you need to understand, the first task of exegesis, this is the first step in our process of interpretation. It involves the careful, systematic study of the Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. It's an attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard it, to find out what was the original intent of the words of the Bible. So exegesis is focused on the there and then aspect of the text. And then hermeneutics is uh, a word that covers the entire field of interpretation, but we're going to use it in a much narrower sense of seeking the contemporary relevance of ancient text. So for us, hermeneutics will be focused on the here and now meaning of the text. Or to say it another way, hermeneutics for us refers to how the text applies to our current situation. Exegesis is understanding what it meant to the first audience. Hermeneutics is what it means for us. Those terms may uh, show up from time to time. Now, the overarching rule of biblical interpretation is that you must start with exegesis. You must begin with understanding what it meant to its original audience before you can jump into what it means for you and I. Because a text cannot mean what it never meant to its original audience. That's the policy we have to accept. The Bible cannot mean something that it never meant to its original audience. 
because it had a specific place and time in which it was originally written. So keep that in mind as we go through this process. And then this book, Grasping God's Word, provides this, kind of, this diagram that I'll run through real quick as a reminder of, of how we go about this interpretive process. We've got to start over here on the left side of the screen in their day and age, the original audience's day and time. We start there. We've got to grasp what the text meant to them before we can move on. But grasping what the text meant in their town for the metaphor that's being used means we have to understand what it meant to them. And the next step in our interpretive process then takes us to this metaphorical river. And the words written in that river are culture, language, time, situation. What that means is that we have something that divides us. We have something that separates us from the original audience. Whether it be the culture or the language or the time or the situation, we have something that separates us from them. So we've got to analyze what that is. We have to measure the width of the river is what the uh, authors of this book say. We have to find what the differences are between us and them, identify them and know what they are before we can then build what is called the principalizing bridge. That's step three of the interpretive process, is discovering what principle existed in their time and in their message and can still exist in our time and for us. What is the overarching theological principle that the text extends from that time back there and then to here and now? Once we identify that theological principle or principles, it could be plural, we then can move closer to our time. We can move over here to step four. And step four involves consulting the biblical map. We, what we do in step four is we look at this theological principle we found in the text and see how it fits with the rest of the Bible. See, we, we need to compare it to the whole biblical message and make sure it's consistent with what is taught elsewhere. And once we've done that, we can start making application, which is step five. And there can be multiple applications that are made for our day and age based on this theological principle we discovered. And so this map is useful, as I skip ahead, this map is sort of useful in helping us understand what it's going to take to get from the original audience's message to the application for today. And I'll reference this throughout our study in the weeks to come, but I just needed to review that real quick as we now turn our attention to actually reading the Bible. See, here's the thing. For us to um, study God's Word, it's going to start with reading. And, and what I want to do tonight, and probably for the next week or next two to three weeks, is just give you strategies for reading. Because reading the text is the number one thing you have to do to understand the text. But the problem many of us have is we're not really great at reading. See, here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to just read the text and walk away. Just read it, not, not necessarily read it in depth or, or carefully. We just, we just read it and take it at face value. The problem with that strategy is that you're never going to find something new because you're going to walk away with what you've always heard or what you've always known. So listen to this quote from the book. If you move straight from your initial reading of a passage to the application of that passage, you will remain tied to your previous understanding of that text. You will rarely see anything new and exciting in the text, and the Bible will become boring for you. 
Additionally, if you are tied to superficial and surface readings of the Bible, or if you always assume that you have already seen and understood all there is, then your relationship with God will tend to stay at the same level. That's why we have to take reading seriously. One of the most critical skills needed in reading the Bible is the ability to see details. Most of us read the Bible too quickly and we skip over the details of the text. However, the meaning of the Bible is intertwined with the details of every sentence. So our first step in grasping a biblical text is to observe as many details as possible. What we're going to do tonight is now focus on nine, nine specific areas of details that we can look at when it comes to just a single sentence in Scripture. Next week, we'll turn our attention to paragraphs. And in the week after that, we'll turn our attention to longer pieces and longer sections. But tonight, we're going to talk about sentences. Now, there's one thing I want you to know. There's a difference between a verse and a sentence. God did not inspire verses. God inspired sentences. What I mean by that is your chapters and verses that are outlined in your Bible were a man-made creation years, years, centuries after the Bible's original compilation. It was done so that we could strategically find sections of Scripture. Chapters and verses are essential for our ability for, for, for me to stand up here while teaching or preaching and say, locate this section and let's read it. It's when you take a book as large as the book of Psalms, you need something to help get you to verses. So, so we have books, uh, books, chapters, and verses that um, the books collectively were, were God, inspired by God in their format, but the chapters and verses are something man added for convenience. So here's the thing. Sometimes in your reading, you don't need to stop at the end of a chapter. You need to be able to read through to the next chapter to get the whole context. You need to read some books of the Bible. You need to, at least once in your life, read through a book of the Bible without stopping so that you get the, the feel of what that book is like in its entirety. Romans reads very differently when you just read the, the whole thing nonstop, but it is a long and it's a heavy read. But you get the full effect of what the author is trying to say when you read the whole thing. If you were... All right, I'm looking at my audience. I was going to say reading a letter, but then there's a whole section over here who don't know what a letter is anymore. And so I thought about an email, but they don't really know what an email is anymore because all they know is Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or something like that. Anyway, if you're reading something somebody wrote to you and you just stopped halfway through because you're like, okay, I'm done reading for now. I'll pick up the rest tomorrow. You might miss the overall idea. So the thing is, when it comes to uh, the Bible, sometimes you need to ignore the chapters and verses. Now, with that being said, I bring that up because we're talking about reading sentences. We're going to talk about tonight strategies uh, when it comes to sen- Don't just stop at the end of the verse. Read the full sentence so you get the full context. That's kind of the, where I'm going with this. But let's talk about nine things you need to do, nine observations you need to make as you read sentences. Let's start with this one. Look for repetition of words. Look for words that repeat. Be sure to note them when you're, when you're studying. And, and survey the sentences around the one you're working on to see if that word gets repeated even more. Now, one thing I'm going to recommend to you, as you, 
as you seek to study the Bible. You might need uh, occasionally, if, you're wanting to, if you want to focus on a particular section, you might need to, to take it and copy the text into a document onto your computer or, or write it on a piece of paper so you can mark it up without destroying your Bible. I encourage you to mark up your Bible if, you so, if you're so inclined. I don't do that. I hate it for myself because I've got poor handwriting and it just makes my Bible look bad. So what I do is I've got a, an app on my phone. I use the Olive Tree Bible app, and I mark up my Bible in the app, highlighting it and, and putting notes in there. And I've got a digital copy of my notes with me wherever I go because I can get it, access it on any device. But for me and my paranoia of destroying my Bible, that's my preferred method. I'm not necessarily saying you need to do that. I've seen some people who are awesome note takers within their Bibles, and their Bibles look artistic when it's all said and done. So find what works best for you. But for some people, and I'm going to show you an example later tonight of just taking a separate sheet of paper, typing out the, the text of a verse, and then dissecting it like you're in English class all over again. And that might be a useful t way for you to go about studying. But one thing you're going to no want to notice is when words are repeated. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we're going to read this, and I want you to find out what word gets repeated the most. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, what word gets repeated the most in this passage? World. Good job. Now, I know we said focus on sentences. I mean, you just look at the first sentence in this passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And three times in the first sentence, the word world gets referenced. But in the whole of these three verses, you have it mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six different times. So right then and there, as you're studying and you notice a word get repeated that much, well, it's a significant part of this text. There's something about the world that's being emphasized in this text. Now, it's worth approaching this text with questions about that word in particular. For instance, does the word world have a definite article in front of it every time? It's worth paying attention to those kind of details. And if you look, every time the word world is mentioned the definite article, the, precedes it. That gives you a clue that the world stands for something. The, the, the world isn't just earth. It's more specific than that. So notice a little detail like that can help you in your study as well. Um, it's also worth looking in, in this text um, to see that there's another word that gets repeated, at least in the first verse, the same amount of times world did. What word was that? love. And so it's worth highlighting that too, if you're specifically if you're looking at that verse. And so you've got love, you've got world being emphasized here. Those are details you're wanting to process through. And, and right off the bat, you can grasp very easily, not that you needed this little strategy to do it, but you see that something about loving the world is at issue here. But noting those words helps you see context, helps you discover something important within the text. I know that's a very simplified uh, example. I'm not trying to be heavy tonight. I'm just trying to give you basic, simple strategies. And I picked out some of the easiest verses to do that with for the sake of our class. So as you're reading the Bible, 
pay attention to those words that get repeated a lot. Let me give you another example. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Find the word that gets repeated. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What word got repeated the most there? Uh, not, we're not going to go with the, uh, the, the articles, um, but the word comfort. It appears in every verse in that section, and even to our ears at times probably sounds a little bit weird the way it's written. But there's, a, there's an emphasis here on comfort that you cannot ignore. Every sentence it appears in. Now, when you start looking at comfort here, there's some things you should do with it. Is it used in the same way every time? Or are there some occasions where it's a verb and some occasions where it's a noun? Let me help you with that. In this instance, I put the nouns in orange and the verbs in green, I think. It's been a long time since I took an English class, and I don't even think they call it English anymore. But I did the best I could with my limited degree here. But you, it helps to note when it's a noun versus a verb, depending on certain words. That get, I mean, love would be another one of those. There will be times where it's going to overlap noun, verb. It helps to distinguish those things. Now, an, another thing worth noticing as you work, work through this particular passage is, um, are there any modifiers associated with the word comfort? Well, by modifiers, I mean these words. All comfort, the comfort, your comfort, our comfort. So, so the term comfort's not getting used in the exact same way every time. Sometimes it belongs to, in this case, our being Paul and his companions at the time of this writing, and your, the comfort belongs to, or is referenced to, the Corinthians' comfort. So making distinctions of what it's referring, noticing the, the, the differences uh, between the uses of comfort here with these modifying words on the, that precede it. It's also worth noting another word gets used a lot in this passage, and that's the word suffering or suffer. And you could technically go back and grab the word affliction that gets used twice earlier on and group them together if you were so inclined. And so there seems to be this contrast being made between suffer, suffering, affliction, slash affliction, suffering slash affliction, and comfort. There's a contrast being made in the text. That's an observation worth making as well. And so you have this, this abundant word in the text to start asking questions of why is that word there so much and how is it being used and that sort of thing. That's the importance of the repetition of words. The other, another strategy to use, another thing to consider, are contrasts. I've already alluded to it, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Contrasts focus on differences within the text. Differences between words, differences between ideas. You're looking at differences between individuals and events and stuff like that. We know what contrasts are, but how do they work in the text of Scripture? Well, here's an example. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. What's the contrast here? What was that, Bradley? Oppressed versus generous. 
The one who oppresses the poor versus the one who is generous to the poor. You know there's another contrast here too? What was that? Poor and needy. That's a possibility. Could be a difference between poor and needy. I'm thinking more of the one, the, the one who oppresses insults his maker. The one who is generous honors his maker. So see, there's more than one contrast here and probably more than two. Observe the contrast because they might serve a good purpose. Here's another example, a passage you're familiar with, I'm sure. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are at least two contrasts here as well. You may want to take a stab at one of the contrasts. What was that? All right, I've heard, I've heard one of them. Wages and gift is one contrast. The other one I've heard said, death and life. So there are, this is a good easy one to note the contrast in, but you can have more than one contrast in a verse. Uh, here's another example, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, which we'll actually use this text a couple of times. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What contrast do you see existing in this? Light and darkness. Multiple times. Now, here's what's also interesting. The contrast applies to two different entities. In the first case, the contrast applies to God. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He is light. There is no darkness. The other contrast applies to his people. We walk, if we, we either walk in darkness or we walk in light. So there's one major thematic contrast between light and darkness, but there's two different ways in which it's being contrasted. So it's worth noting contrasts in the text. But we also need to note comparisons. In one case, you're noting the differences. In the other, you're noting the similarities. The same concept, just differences versus similarities. Let's notice some similarities. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What's the comparison here? Well, spring and fountain are not necessarily being compared to each other, but that's one half of the comparison. Well... The righteous and the wicked aren't necessarily being compared. The muddied spring is being compared, and, and the polluted fountain is being compared to the righteous man who gives way to the wicked. So, oh, uh, I didn't highlight. The spring is actually a source of water that comes out of the ground into the pures. Mm-hmm. And a fountain is where you get your pure water. But that's not what the author is contrasting. What he's contrasting is a muddied spring. Is a muddy spring useful for anything? Are you going to drink from a muddied spring? Are you going to drink from a polluted fountain? Neither one. Both are the same. You're not going to drink from either one. And a righteous man who gives way before the wicked is just as useless as a muddied spring or a polluted fountain. They're good for nothing. 
That's the, that's the ultimate comparison being made here. Now, that's not to say you can't make a comparison between the muddied spring or the, and the polluted fountain. You could draw the comparison if, if you were so inclined. But I, I think the author is really trying to compare those in a metaphoric kind of way to a man who gives way before the wicked. Now, James chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, you're probably familiar with this one. There are three comparisons made in this text. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. What three things is the tongue compared to? Bits, fire, and a rudder. Three different things the tongue is compared to. Now, the interesting thing is most of the time when we go to this passage, we just focus on the fire. But the rudder and the bits are important, too, because they are part of the comparison. So you want to note repetition, you want to note contrast, you want to note comparison. You also want to note lists. Now, this is probably the easiest one to pick up on. Because, you know, preachers are really good about expounding upon lists, or at least this preacher is. And so when you, you come across a list, you find, uh, anytime you find more than one thing itemized, you're going to go, okay, that's a list, I need to... I need to explore its significance. I need to consider uh, what it's listing. What, what, what's its purpose? Is there an order to the list? Is there intentionality to the list? Are they grouped in a specific way? When you think about lists, you probably will think about something like 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There are three things mentioned here, and I did a horrible job highlighting that last one. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. That's a list. You might, even, you might also think when it comes to lists, you might think of the qualifications of elders. We have that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have that in Titus chapter 1. We have a list of qualifications. That's an easy list to observe. Another pretty easy list, fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a pretty, pretty easy list. Now, I preached this on this list uh, a couple years ago, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's a list. It's, it's kind of a unique one because it repeats um, the, uh, the previous word multiple times. But it's a list. There are some lists that will be a little bit more complicated than these, but when you come across something that's providing multiple category, or multiple listings of a particular category, pay attention to that. There might be an intentional order to it. There, there, might, be, um, there, there might be some sort of organization to it. There might be uh, some unique wordage and verbiage there. So pay attention to lists. In addition to, to that, think about cause and effect. In Scripture, oftentimes we will encounter these, uh, these passages where the author, oops, I skipped over it, let me get back here, where the, the biblical writer will state a cause and then subsequently its effect, or maybe conversely, maybe state the effect and then provide the cause. Let me give you an example. John chapter 3 and verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What's the cause? What was that, Miss Debbie? The cause is God's love of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What's the effect? Whoever believes in him should not perish. There's a causal relationship between the not perishing and God's love manifested through his son. So that's one cause and effect. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the testing, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, this one may not be as easy. What is the cause here? And what is the effect? What do you think the cause is? Oh, let's just... Let's just shout out every phrase in the verse. You could include conforming on the cause, but ultimately it's the transforming. But conform, not conforming is congruent with transforming. In fact, actually, isn't there a comparison-contrast kind of thing happening here? See, I can't pick up on every one for every verse, but... Um, trans- being transformed is the cause, and the result is your ability to discern what the will of God is. If you're transformed, then you can discern. But So we can't exclude the con- not being conformed from the cause, because you can't be transformed if you're conformed. So that's part of the cause, too. I just didn't highlight it. Now, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1. Cause and effect. What is the cause? What is the effect? I'm going to give you a hint. There's two causes, there's two effects. Soft answer and harsh word are both causes. The effects are turning away wrath and stirring up anger. A soft answer is a cause that turns away wrath, the effect. A harsh word is a cause that stirs up anger and effect. In Psalm chapter 13 and verse 6, What's the cause? I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Anybody want to take a stab at the cause? I heard it back here. He has dealt bountifully with me as the cause. The effect is I will sing to the Lord. That one's reversed the order. But finding cause and effects can help you understand a passage. This happened, and as a result, this happened. Now let's talk about figures of speech. And this one could be broken down and take us all night to where we talk about all the different types of figures of speech. But obviously we don't have time for that. Figures of speech, though, are images in which words are used in a sense other than the normal literal sense. As you observe biblical texts, always identify any figures of speech that occur. Try to visualize the figure of speech. Ask yourself what image is the author trying to convey with that figure of speech. They're powerful literary forms because they paint images to which we can relate emotionally. So let's start with this one. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What's the figure of speech? It's not complicated. 
No, it's e- this, one's, this one should be easy. But it might not be. What's the figure of speech? What's not literal? Lamp. Oh, sorry, I thought that was going to highlight. The lamp is not literal. God's word, his word is literal. God's word, and I don't, that's not the Bible, so I'm not going to pick that up. The, God's word is not a literal lamp or light. But it is figuratively so. It guides us in the way that we should go. So the figure of speech here is that God's word is a lamp. There is this metaphor involved. What about this one? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's the figure of speech? Sheep. Are you a literal sheep? I hope not. There's a, there is a figure of speech being used to help us. Now, I don't think very many of us have been shepherds. Anybody here been a shepherd before? Anybody here raised animals before? Not dogs and cats. I mean, I know we're talking cattle and horses and things like that. We've got a few of those. Now, here's what we do understand. We do understand that when an animal leaves, we got to go find it. I remember Bradley telling me one time he drove home from, from worship, got home, and all his cows were out, and he had to go hunt all of them down in the dark. We understand the concept of an animal getting out and being lost, even when it comes to dogs or cats. So we can paint an image in our head of a sheep that's gone astray. That's not a hard thing for us to comprehend. But that is a figure of speech because we're not literal sheep. What about Matthew 23, verse 27? Jesus speaking said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all, all uncleanness. What's the figure of speech? Whitewashed tombs. Now, let's be honest. Whitewashing doesn't happen that much anymore in the context of, of what this is referring. A whitewashed tomb. And we don't use tombs per se anymore. But is that lost on us? Now, we can envision, we can envision an ornately painted burial spot, an ornately cleaned and decorated burial location for something that's dead. I mean, you can, you can uh, go on, online right now and see images of uh, different Pharaoh's uh, tombs and get an idea of this decorated and beautiful space for something that is non-existent anymore. And Jesus is calling the the Pharisees and the scribes this place of dead people's bones that dresses up for appearance's sake. We get it. That's a figure of speech we can comprehend, even though it's not using a contemporary setting. And then 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's the figure of speech? Noisy gong or clinging cymbal. Both are a figure of speech. And we get it. We get what Paul is saying here. With, without love, any gift you have is just an annoying noise. So we, we can grasp 
this um, figure of speech, even though we might not own a gong or ever used a gong or owned cymbals or ever used cymbals, we can get it because we know it's a musical instrument that's just making noise and has no purpose. And that's what love, that's what a gift is without love. So we can get these figures of speech. So pay attention to those. Also pay attention to conjunctions. Oh, now, now we're getting where there's a lot going to be involved in our reading. Conjunctions matter more than we realize. In fact, uh, in, in this book, they make the point that if, if the text of the Bible were a, a brick house, the conjunctions are the mortar holding the bricks together. Every word is a brick, and the conjunctions are the mortar, that is, the conjunctions are holding it together. So the, the reason we need to pay attention to conjunctions is because they can identify the, the purpose or function of what's happening in the text. Uh, they can, excuse me, we need to identify their purpose or function in the text because they do um, inherently communicate things to us. So let me give you an example of a passage that's probably familiar to you, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What conjunctions do you see? How many ands do you see? Two. Now, those are pretty powerful ands when you consider them. What does Peter say they have to do? One thing or two things? Two things. And if they do that, do they receive one thing or two things? Two things. Their responsibility, according to Peter, is that they have to, that what they need to do, because the question that preceded this is, what must I do? Well, or what do we need to do kind of thing? Repentance and baptism are the response. And what they receive as a result of doing that are forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. So that conjunction is really important. But and's not the only conjunction we need to pay attention to. Now look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. And verse 33 is, is a very well-known passage to us. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there's a lot of conjunctions in here. I'm going to help you out. You've got a couple of ors on the front end. That's important because the three questions posed there, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, that or is telling us that all these are equivalent. It can be this question, this question, or that question. It doesn't matter which question it is, it can be all of them. And then the Gentiles seek after these things. There's a kind of a comparison being made here. The Gentiles seek after this, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, do you realize when we quote Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Rarely do we include the but. When we sing the song, I don't know that, I don't remember but being in Seeky first. Now think about this. That's an important but because it creates a contrast. What's it contrasting? It's contrasting the Gentile, what the Gentiles seek with what you're supposed to seek. You have to go back to the beginning of verse 32 to, to see that. But the Gentiles seek, but you seek, the implied you here. Because seek is an imperative statement. And there's one final and. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. you got to seek two things. Now they 
run together. But all those conjunctions serve a purpose. Now look at Luke chapter 7, verse 23. And he said to all, Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Your conjunctions and then but. The ands are important because it's not enough just to deny yourself. It's not enough to just solely follow him. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him in order to be his disciple. And then in the second half of the verse, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. The but is showing a contrast between two different approaches, two different attitudes. The conjunctions have a purpose. Uh, and then also Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. I, I include this one because the, the, it's kind of a weird, weirdly worded verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I, in English, that sounds like something was left off the end of the verse. It sounds like it should say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the way it should read in English, but it doesn't because that's not how it's written in Greek. The importance of the but there is it implies that the second half contrasts the first. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's one category. The other category is the one who does the will of my Father. Doing his will is more than just proclaiming, is more important than just proclaiming his name. The contrast is being set there to show that for us. So the but is important. And I, I, like, I, I like using this one because it feels like an incomplete sentence on the second half. But the but tells us how to complete the sentence. And finally, I'll, I'll reference this one real quick. Genesis chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. There's, this conjunct, there's other conjunctions. I just want to highlight the but here in verse 8. Because you have to find the contrast by going back to verse 5. You have to skip a couple of verses to find the contrast. The contrast is that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth, but Noah found favor in his eyes. Noah, the contrast is being made between the wickedness of all the other people on earth and Noah. God saw one was wicked. God saw one was righteous. So the con sometimes to find the, what the conjunction is working with, you have to skip some verses. So conjunctions are important. Now I want to talk about some other types of conjunctions, particularly therefore and so. Now you've probably heard preachers who, who think they're so cool say, when you come across a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. We think we're so clever, don't we? And I am absolutely certain I've said that. <laughs> therefore or so usually presents some type of conclusion based on earlier arguments or reasons. So when you encounter a therefore or a so, look back in the text and determine what the earlier reason was. Sometimes the reason's easy to find. Other times you got to dig a little deeper or dig a little further back. So let me give you two examples. An easy one is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When you look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and you're like, okay, this is the start of the chapter. The therefore leads off the chapter. So I've got to go back to chapter 11 to start my search for what the therefore is referring to. Well, the, the beauty is that chapter 11 is that 
Faith Hall of Fame with all of these Old Testament heroes of faith identified. And so very quickly you can draw the conclusion that that list of heroes is the great cloud of witnesses that chapter 12 verse 1 is referring to. So bam, my therefore is a conclusion drawn from the previous chapter in Hebrews about having all these heroes of faith as my great cloud of witnesses. That one's an easy one to dissect. But then you go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Leading off a chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The problem or the difficulty with this, therefore, is this referring to all 11 previous chapters of Romans. Because in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is presenting a theological argument regarding the grace of God and salvation. And he's pointing out in that 11 chapters that you're not good enough, but God is great enough that you can receive salvation. And because God has done this for you, has extended his grace to you that you can receive, and just to frame it, in Romans 6 we'll find out you receive it through baptism, but... Uh, God has extended this grace to you, so therefore, because God's extended grace to you, this is how you ought to live. Because the rest of Romans 12, moving through chapter 15, is all about practical, behavior-oriented living under the will of God. So the therefore connects 11 chapters worth of material moving forward. So, that one, so the therefore can be somewhat uh, uh, time-consuming to find conclusions to depending on what you're looking at. Now look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and look at the fors and the therefores and the nors and the buts and the ands. There are a ton of conjunctions in here. You will, when you come to some text, it's just going to be chock full of these. But it's worth paying attention to them. That for God gave us a spirit, the word for is drawing a conclusion. But is used there to contrast the spirit of fear with the spirit of power, love, and self-control. The ands show that the spirit God has given us uh, consists of power, love, and self-control. And uh, then you can get to that, therefore. So since God's given us a spirit, we don't need to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of Paul, his prisoner. That was specifically directed to Timothy himself. But share in the suffering. I'm suffering. You share as well. So you, you can get a verse chock full of, conjunctions. Also pay attention to verbs. I'm going to run through this really quick. Verbs are important. They're action words. But more importantly, you need to pay attention to the tense of the verbs. Is it past, present, or future? Is it a progressive tense, such as I was going, I am going, I will be going? Is it an imperative, like a command? So let me show you some examples. John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. I've highlighted all the verbs. Now, in this particular context, I've highlighted them to show the imperative verbs in orange, let, believe, those are imperative statements, command-oriented statements from Jesus to his apostles. And then there are present tense verbs like be, are, go, prepare, be, and, and know. All those are present tense verbs, things that are happening present tense as Jesus is speaking. But then he does have a couple of past tense verbs in there, were and told, were past tense. And then you can see the will come and will take our future tense. Jesus is telling his disciples that I am going, present tense, to prepare a place for you, and I will come back, future tense. But that am going is also, I highlighted that one in green, 
Because it's continuous. It's not a once and done thing in the in that it's a progressive verb. That will, make, that, that will matter more when we get to this next verse, which is the, greatest, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Past tense, come, said, has been given, have commanded. Imperatives, go and make. Progressive, ongoing action, baptizing and teaching. And then present tense, observe and am. So when you look at the verbs, it does help to notice tenses. Especially when it's ongoing activity, that can matter a great deal because sometimes we think things are a once and done thing when they're actually a continual activity. It's important. Notice the imperative commands, the words that are, are stated as, as something we are expected to do or obey. So pay attention to the verbs and their tenses. Um, it's also important to pay attention to whether they're active or passive. Passive means something done by, well, let me back up. Pa- passive uh, means the subject is being acted upon by someone or something else. Active means the subject is, is doing the action. So an active verb is Bill hit the ball. A passive verb is Bill was hit by the ball. This matters a lot in Paul's writing because he will talk about things that God does and things that we're expected to do. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. God has done the calling. That's a passive verb. We are to do the walking. That's the active verb. Another example is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Have been raised is a passive terminology referring to what God has done. Seeking is what we're expected to do. So you will notice that seek is also an imperative. So that multiple things can be going on with each verb, but paying attention to how they're being used does matter. Pronouns matter too. Let me just show you one example, Revelation 22. You have me's and it's and they and his and their all throughout here. What gets fascinating is the angel showed me. The me pronoun is a reference to John, the author. It's is a reference to the city he is observing. Then you get down to his, that's a reference to God, his and him. But they, they is a reference to his servants, to God's servants at the end of verse 4. It says his servants will worship him, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. But then verse 5, there will be no night there. They, again, a reference to God's servants, will need no, no light or lamp or son, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Who's reigning? They? Does that seem weird? The Bible talks about God's servants reigning with him. Anyway, it's important to pay pay attention to pronouns because look at that. We wouldn't have noticed that without the pronoun. And then Philippians chapter 1, you have your, you, them, their, him, his, so on. So pronouns can matter too. So this is the list. When you're reading sentences, look for repetition, look for contrast comparisons, list, cause and effect, figures of speech, conjunctions, verbs, pronouns. There you have it, some tools for your own personal Bible study. Next week we're going to add more to this as we focus on larger texts of Scripture. Thank you for your participation tonight. Sorry to keep you over. Y'all have a blessed week.